This week on Plot Points Podcast, we discuss the writer's process and why Mark keeps up with the Kardashians and why coverage writers hate Toby. It's a Nietzsche quote. This is Plot Points Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Sevy with uh, Plot Points Podcast. We're here in our secret headquarters in downtown Newport Beach. We're happy to be with you. We hope you're happy to be with us. Um, we're on episode eight of our podcast, which seems impossible, but uh, it's been a great joy. I'm here with uh, Mary Claire Anderson. Hi there. Who's the co-host? Is I don't know if it's co-host or co-hostess. It's like actor or actress. I think it works either way. And uh, Toby Walwork. Hi there. Who is our engineer slash co-host. He sits behind the board and makes us sound great, which if you listen to other podcasts, you can definitely tell that there's a level of uh, competency behind this one. Whether or not you agree with our opinions or not, Toby makes it all sound great. So thank you, Toby, for your your expertise. Mark, it is is my uh, unreserved pleasure to make the podcast sound as... uh as, as good as it can sound, uh, in lieu of actually uh, having an opinion that's uh, valid or useful. Is, is audio editing anything like uh, video editing? Is it uh, similarly frustrating? Uh, it's sim- it is frustrating, yes, in, in some new and exciting ways. Video editing is a lot of audio editing. Uh, but when you're just focused on the audio, there is actually some uh, uh, freedom that you don't have with video. But then uh, you're really just focusing on one thing and making the picture form in your mind becomes a big thing. So it, it's, it's different, but a related set of skills. Mm. I don't know why I'm, I'm suddenly thinking about this stuff, but um, ADR. Um, yes. How to, uh, explain what that is and, and explain how you do that after the fact well, when you're doing a film. I've only done it a few times. When I've done it, uh, it's been very... Uh, sort of a, a bush league setup, but mostly you're playing on, on the largest screen possible. You're playing back the scene, uh, usually the completely edited scene, uh, and then you're bringing in your actor to reread how they did it, and they're looking at their sync. Are they? Is that and because of uh, like uh, bad audio or outdoors? A lot or? of times it's bad audio. Universal Pictures is notorious for wanting to loop. Everything like mm-hmm. they'll record stuff on location, but most of the time they want to re-record everything mm-hmm. anyway, so it's the best it can be. Sometimes uh, it can be. This is actually I, I saw this. I obviously didn't uh, do it, but they did. They did the scene in Batman Returns when uh, Michael Keaton's character meets uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, and they wanted to loop it just so he had a slightly different inflection hmm. on one of the lines. Wow! But it was still timing. It had to be the same. It was just. And it's it's when they meet and they're looking in the, the who makes the that shop decision. Uh, well, you could say it's the director if the director has that cut. It could be the producer really feels that this scene should go a slightly different way. A lot of times it's technical. Mm. A lot of times a plane flies over, or a train goes by, something like that, or it's just bad recording. Um, but when you want to change the performance, I would suge- I would assume that was more of a, a director's call. Yeah, I just wondered. I mean, I've been I've been involved in a lot of films, but not 
not so much in the post-production, pre-production, production, but not the post. I don't. I used to go see uh, trailers all the time, which I used to love, mm-hmm. because you see about twenty-five versions of the same scene, and you just—I mean, it must be tedious to to go through that. So, yeah. How, well, Ed, we'll talk about it later. Anyway, MC, you had some family visiting. Did they enjoy themselves while they were here? Yes, uh, my mother was in town. Uh, we're in the midst of planning uh, my wedding, uh, which is yeah <laughs> happening. Oh, the countdown is on. It's like uh, less than three months away, so we're starting to wrap up. Like everything is converging at the moment, <laughs> like all of the little details. And so she was here to sort of help oversee all of those details um, and just really help execute sort of this vision overall. So she she had a great time. I think she likes to be here and be involved, and uh, and it was glad, or you know, we were glad to have her here and entertain her for. Sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. I wish you would have brought her to class. I would have enjoyed meeting her. <laughs> This week uh, in film uh, watching or TV watching, uh, what do you get? What were you guys uh, uh, blowing your free time on? Mm-hmm. Um, I spent the week. I, I kind of well, I didn't get all the way through it, but I've been watching Ozark on Netflix. Um, I'm about halfway through, um, which is a new show um, about a family man playing uh, or played by Jason Bateman, who sends sort of his family into a, a dangerous downward spiral by you know getting involved in criminal activities for which he happens to kind of have a gift which is money laundering Mm. um and after kind of that money laundering scheme goes wrong he relocates the family from chicago to the ozarks and has to sort of pay off his debts um and this is kind of an odder statement but i liked it um although i'm not sure why um (laughs) like i thought many of the elements were borrowed from a few different maybe other shows like given its premise and kind of the compounding you know, problems that this character faces as he delves deeper into corruption. Like, it reminds you um, or calls kind of to to mind of, you know, stories like Breaking Bad or even Bloodline, Um, you know, kind of a man who's decent on the surface, but, you know, gets involved in sort of these dirty deeds and, you know, has to dig himself out of deeper, you know, more dangerous holes. Um, But it's still really compelling to watch. Like, it's still really interesting. Like, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of different crime families involved like three different ones um the ozarks yeah the ozarks Ozarks, very dangerous place i recommend going there for your summers Um, might put that on the list (laughs) yeah um and so i mean they're just as like it's problem after problem and so i mean there uh, there are times where it gets a bit muddied for sure it's kind of like is this really this is happening kind of in the ozarks um but um but it's still really interesting and i still kind of yeah made my way through it this is a new netflix offering Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i haven't i've seen it i think but i haven't seen the uh, i've I've seen ads for it Mm -hmm. and i haven't seen it myself but i I, i'm I'm a little nervous i feel like this might be another wire opportunity where i need to get in on it before because everyone i'm talking to is assuming you've already seen it it's like, oh, man, I mean, that Ozarks, we, we finally watched yeah, the last stop, stop, episode. Stop. We finally got to the last episode. I'm like, what, what, what? I, I haven't seen it. You're, you're not watching it? I'm like, no, it's, it only came out like a week ago. I know. Yeah, if you're not on top of the streaming stuff these days. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah, I mean, and there's you, so you much haven't out found there eight consecutive hours in the last, <laughs> you know, 96 hours to catch yeah. up on Ozarks. You say, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I was a really big fan of Arrested Development. And they're mm-hmm. like, yes, but it's not the same. I'm like, I, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. I'm compensating. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a pre- – you know, it used to be magazine pressure where you would have a stack of magazines by the bed or by, the, uh, the, by your desk, and they would sit there and look at you mutely and yes. say, you're supposed to be reading. Mm-hmm. Now you're two months behind on uh, Popular Science or, or Red Book or something, and uh, so now it's, now it's the streaming world. I mean, you add that stuff to you. I have 480-some 
things on my list on Netflix that I, I'll probably never get to. Yeah, I, I have, I've had to uh, uh, abandon the um, – what do you call that? The the The, the, the queue? The queue. The uh, forget it. I don't need that. I, I, I used to be intimidated when the DVR – you know, mm-hmm. you look at our DVR has like a little gas gauge on it, and it's like anytime you're better than fifty percent, you're like, oh, geez, yeah, I got to get to that. Uh, and it really, episode. you really do kind of. Th- and I've got uh, for a few reasons, but the there's a documentary about the Newtown massacre. Mm-hmm. It was it was actually run on PBS in April. Mm-hmm. It's still on the DVR, and every time I clean the DVR, I look at it, and I go, I do need to get to that, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, like it's this is not the day. <laughs> this is not the day for that, but. But yeah, so so Ozark, I've uh, I've only heard good things about it. Like I don't know anybody that doesn't like it. So I love Jason Bateman, so I'm sure. Yeah. I'm I know sure I love him too. Him. I think a lot of times people watch it so thinking like I have to like it because people are talking about it or because it's new. And so I'll be interested to hear. Like I, I did I did like it, but I I do think it has some flaws to it overall. And so mm-hmm. and I think it's I mean it reminds me of a lot of other shows. I feel like it takes a lot of these other. Um, you know, tropes maybe as well. Um, and it, it stands alone, I think, as much as it can. But I do think, um, yeah, it's interesting. So, mm-hmm. Tobe, what are you watching? This week, uh, I was very happy. Uh, again, I've, I've been working on several very time-consuming projects, but I was very happy to sort of insist on a little, uh, sorry, a little me time, which actually just means just w- watching movies and TV and other things that other people have made. And uh, I watched uh, The Girl on the Train, which I, I have to admit, we, we get, it, it's like video on demand and you scroll through the whole list and you're looking for something that you thought might be there by now because I haven't seen any, like mm-hmm. I, 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 this is, I think I've only been to the movies twice this year. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot of stuff I wanted to see should be available. And uh, The Girl on the Train, it looked kind of interesting. I watched the trailer and I thought, okay, well, I, I see the, uh, uh, the puzzle they're setting up. So do I care enough to find out what the answer is? So I decided to sit down and watch it. Uh, it's a it's a fantastic performance from Emily Blunt. Uh, she's she, always good. She's uh, in this though. It's it's in, in that respect, she, her performance transcends the movie. The movie is a little bit of a if then statement. You know, it's like well, there's definitely a mystery, and then there's a twist. We'll watch it. But her performance is is uh, is amazing as someone who uh, from the get go is not entirely uh, on on her on her best. Uh, having her best day she's an alcoholic yeah (laughs) so she's she's an unreliable narrator she's an an unreliable narrator but she's also an unreliable participant Mm -hmm. in her own narrative which becomes like a big thing and uh the 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 last 10 minutes uh you know where the story kind of has to take front and center you go well yeah it was going to be this that or that so there you go it's not a dream but but her performance throughout is it is just Fantastic. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good. Actress. The movie itself is worth watching. That and going. I, I don't necessarily want to see more movies like that because it's like I said, she's not having a good day. But you want to see that caliber of performance. Like you want to see a character that is that uh, flawed, uh, developed, dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, and and people that are the people that surround her. And again, I'm being super vague on plot on purpose. But like the roommate that she's staying with is like very credible because it's it's like this person that sort of wants to help. But also needs to maintain uh, their their uh, boundaries and barriers, and uh, it's fascinating. I just uh, really good. Yeah, movie. I, I, it, I, will you read the book? Uh, will that even oh, be a consideration? Not. No, yeah. okay. Because now I know the ending. <laughs> Was uh, did the author do the screenplay, or do you know who wrote the film? Uh, I checked. I didn't. I believe that the author did not do the okay. screenplay. Mm. That's Initially, probably, I read the if book. You, if you mm. see the trailer, oh, yeah. and I think one of the po- things that made the book popular probably was it has a, initially a Gone Girl vibe. Right. Mm. 
And uh, that's probably something that helped the film get made and maybe even get, get seen. But it's, it's not Gone Girl, and not, not to throw stones, it's, it's not Gone Girl, it's much more interesting. Mm-hmm. I'll have to check it that. out. It's on the list, um, obviously. Yeah. But uh, I mean, don't rush out and no, see. No, no, mm-hmm. no. I, I don't rush out to see anything, to tell you the truth anymore. It's uh, even even the newer Game of Thrones. I'm, I'm, you know. Well, of course, I'm still on episode or season three, so that's one of it. Um, I watched uh, for class. I watched Silence of the Lambs, and um, I assigned that to both my intro and intermediate class. And I watched Wonder Woman. Finally, I saw Wonder Woman, which. Um, I'd like to maybe talk next week about writing a sequel to that and what I think the problems are going to be. I'm, I'm, I want to look into my Nostradamus uh, ball and see what I think the problems are going to be with that franchise. Um, but uh, the, the thing that intrigued me most, and I only watched one episode, so I can't really speak to the, to the bigger picture, but I watched R- Rain, R-E-I-G-N, which is about Mary Queen of Scots. And it's a, I believe it's a CW series. They have all 78 episodes, or they have 78 episodes on Netflix. And it's one of those um, kind of awkward hybrids of, uh, I mean, all everybody's pretty. Everybody's gorgeous, actually. Just stunning actors and actresses. Nobody's teeth are bad. You know, it's not like Game of Thrones where you walk <laughs> in and you can smell the, mm-hmm. smell the, uh, the, the, the situation. Uh, and then they do modern music behind some of the scenes, which doesn't always that that's one of the things I really don't like. But um, it's actually very compelling. And what's compelling about it is her story, which is uh, basically she was engaged to um, I can't remember the house, but she was engaged to be married since she was six years old. She comes to the palace when she's 14 or 15 uh, to kind of not consummate it, but to maybe consummate it. But there's conversations in this I've never seen before. It's like, um, if we need to be married, we'll be married. Until that time, you don't have any sway over me. I mean, there's, there's really some really interesting interpersonal relationships. Then there's a, then there's a of course, there's court intrigue. Uh, there's somebody trying to kill her. There's an odd woman with a bag over her head, uh, a sack, I mean, all in all, I was re- I really enjoyed it, and I thought this w- I could t- I could go through another couple episodes with this to see if it'll catch uh, firmly with me. So, um, so that's what I, I I don't know why I started it. I would not <laughs> normally have yeah. watched something like this, but it's uh, pretty good. I would recommend it. I would try it out. And like I said, just for the eye candy, male and female, there are some really beautiful people. Plus, they have um, what are those big dogs? Irish Wolfhound. They have an Irish Wolfhound in, in this, which is her dog. And it's, I just love those dogs. They're just so <laughs> ugly and so huge. So anyway. Um, how about writing? Anybody doing any writing? Uh, not, not this week. No. Okay. Uh, me, I mean, I've been, you know, one of our classmates actually, um, Shadia, who was on the podcast, mm-hmm. is doing a short film production at the moment. And um, she's looking to submit it for a contest. And... You know, she did day one of shooting and um, and I think didn't anticipate doing a day two, but is now doing a day two and um, and asked for some help from um, for myself in terms of producing, like for lack of a better word. But um, but really, that just means like me sending emails about logistics and scheduling and stuff like that. So I've been helping her a little bit. That's involved me going to production meetings, um, table reads and the, we're shooting this this evening. So um, so that's taken up 
a good chunk of my time overall throughout the week. But but it's exciting to be uh, to be a part of something. Um, we're using a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, a bigger cast, um, a bigger crew, and so it's been intriguing to see everything from kind of yeah behind the scenes, the post. Good, you'd make the production. A good, you would be a good producer. Do you think that uh, watching? The production unfurl, uh, the rubber hit the road, so to speak. Is that going to affect your writing? No. <laughs> I mean, well, maybe. Who knows? Well, it, um, it will. But um, in a positive way, in a very positive I, way. I would think it would inform it because you, you, you actually see the, the steps between uh, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even, and yeah, and it's Shadia's script that we're working off of, too. And it's been interesting to see her. I mean, she's directing the whole thing, but it's been interesting to see her say, okay, this line's maybe not working, or, um, you know, seeing how the actors are seeing, you know, the characters through her words. So, yeah, so maybe I shouldn't be too quick, but, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how everything kind of. Yeah, pans out this evening. Um, I mean, it's a longer shooting day. I mean, they're planning for six hours. So, um, and it's, it's and it's shoot. yeah, it's a long shoot. And it's for it's for a short. It's for ten minutes overall. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been it's been good um, because yeah, I'm a little bit in my helmet. I mean, really, it's just me kind of like bossing other people around, mm-hmm. which very good at um and so amen uh, and so it's been it's been fun to to kind of yeah wrangle everybody and and just see yeah what the inner workings look like but um but maybe i won't be saying that after six hours tonight but but we'll see yeah no it's been it's been glad, uh, great so i was really excited that she asked me to be a part of it yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think we should follow up and see <laughs> yeah, how, how next that podcast went. absolutely mm-hmm. yeah shadi is a very talented writer and filmmaker um I, I think she gets too internalized. She she sees, like, it's like uh, we just watched the movie Her, uh, which I had a discussion with one of our friends on this. Um, and, and it's, I think that Spike Jones knew exactly what he wanted mm-hmm. to do with the film. I don't necessarily agree that it was all connected. And Shadi is like that, too. She she wants you to reach very deeply for That's her true. for her material. And I think that's a talent that has to be really, really worked on and developed. And, uh, and but I like her stuff. I really enjoy watching. Yeah, because she's like Spike. Jo- I mean, she's a big fan of him too. But she has always a real true vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's just yeah, the fact you know connecting that vision to the audience. But um, but I like watching her work. Like she very much knows what she wants to say and do. Mm-hmm. And it's just yeah, a matter of having you know the audiences understand that too. But she wants people to work. You yeah. know when they're watching her film. Yeah, so the thing with, the thing with that is sometimes a coat rack is just a coat rack, and people don't perceive it as being a uh, you know. A, a conversation about mm-hmm. the the eternal um, frustration of uh, our society, and so I just think that some things have to be more clear, and that's really hard. That's so subjective, and it's very totally. hard. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then for me, I've just been—I mean, I'm working um, on three or four things at the same time. Um, the the cl- the rewrite. Uh, we're still working on contracts, which. <sighs> I don't want to say anything about that, but um, uh, it's still in process. It's still we're still not me. I'm not negotiating anything. We've negotiated my terms. Uh, It's between the producer and the writer at this point, the original writer. So they need to get their ducks in a row. And then I'm still working on my Revolutionary War script. I just wrote a couple pages on a portion of it. You don't think of the Revolutionary War as having Indians in it, but it had quite a few Indians in it which I thought was fascinating, especially the, the Oneida Indians in Canada. And so I just wrote some scenes with them in it, and it's just surprising how much it changes the... Because you're used to thinking of these guys as being in red coats or blue coats or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I guess that's not actually accurate. But 
uh, Indians makes a whole different um, American Indians and Canadian Indians makes a whole different slant to it. So that was fun. And then um, I'm collaborating, I think, with a, a really good friend um, on a uh, on a horror film, and then uh, still working on trying to figure out a limited location uh, project, which uh, I'm just having no luck at. I'm just I'm just not good at that. I'm just not good at limited location. I don't. I can't think beyond. If I can't cut somebody up or, you know, blow somebody up or take them to a different place, I just I just don't succeed that well. Just spoken like a poet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I I would love to write Twelve Angry Men. I would love mm-hmm. to write uh, Hard Candy. I would love to write a movie that's so complete and so compelling that you don't need more than one room or Could it be a bigger limited limit? Oh, know, sure, location? sure. No, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. You know, like, because we, we discussed briefly the limited location uh, as, as being very popular mm-hmm. in, in filmmaking, largely for financial reasons, but there's an, an exciting creative challenge. Mm-hmm. But when you say limited location, what, what... One or two places. One or two places, but how big could that place be? Well, like the place that we're in right now would be wonderful to do in limited location. But you know from experience, what you have to do is it's not, it may look like one location, but it's yeah. maybe 100 setups. It, yeah, and also it, realistically, that one location could be two locations, but you're making it look like one location. Right. I, if I could think of a warehouse uh, mm-hmm. or a, an insane asylum. Yeah, or, that's perfect. I'm talking about that where you don't have to move the, the crew. Basically, that's limited location. I'd actually love to write like uh, Evil Dead or uh, Cabin in the Woods or something like that. I love the woods. And, and in that case, you're writing the cabin as limited location, but then you have the forest around mm-hmm. it and you can also go there. So I started to do something with that and I came up with what I thought was a good idea. And then I've talked myself out of it. So I, I just I don't know if I'll go back to that or uh, there's some tra- problems with it. Of course, any script has those. I, I don't know. Anyway. My goal remains to write a limited location uh, project that uh, that would uh, be easier to sell than some of the stuff that I normally write. And, and you know, when I was uh, when I was uh, working um, a lot, a lot of this stuff was very low budget. It was under under a million dollars. Some of it under seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. So those are fairly limited locations yeah. too. But yeah. they're not what I'm talking about, which is like I said, cabin in the woods, yeah. card candy. 12 Angry Men. Uh, there's some really good ones out mm-hmm. there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 12 Angry Men is probably, you know, not, not to be snobby, but that's, that's probably the high it's water insanely mark. insanely good. It's you insanely know, so good. That's, that's definitely what you, you would aim for. But there's, a, especially with, with sort of horror, it's a great, um, it's, it's a very popular choice because mm-hmm. it, makes, it makes it sort of doable. Did anybody ever see Alien Raiders? Nope. Don't think I did. Were you with OC Screenwriters when Steve uh, Goldman came down? We did a thing at the theater. We did a horror panel. Horror. No, that was before my time. He, he produced it, and I watched it again not too long ago, and it basically takes place in a grocery store. It's got a great story, though. Uh, there's a grocery store in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and it's got a great story. It's really a good uh, – it's a low-budget, limited location. And see, that's the kind of thing that I would like to write, which has aliens or horror, a horror element. I don't – and, and when you look at it, you think, oh, this, all, this makes perfect sense. But, wow, it was really well mm-hmm. done. I, I recommend it if you guys want to see what a good limited location horror film looks like. And what's it called again? Alien uh, Raiders. Alien Raiders. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll, I'll give I it think a it's on. I think I saw it last on Amazon. So, okay. okay. Cool. Yeah. 
Recently, through his work with OddFest, a film festival dedicated to the cause of autism awareness, I had the distinct privilege of interviewing legendary actor Ed Asner. Warm, funny, humble, self-effacing, smart. Name any positive adjective and you've got Ed. He's a true American icon in all ways. My thanks to him and his daughter, Liza, whose name I consistently mispronounced, and to my friend and student, Lisa Krasner, who arranged this interview. We're going to play an excerpt now and publish the entire interview on a podcast following this one soon. Here's an excerpt of my interview with the wonderful Mr. Asner. What was your thought when you were asked to do a dramatization of a comedic character? Well, I, uh, I was so graced by the uh, care and writing of the uh, producer writers. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of more that uh, when they wanted to go straight, I said, well, hell, they... They're geniuses. They'll take care of me. Mm, that's a great attitude. As it turned out, they didn't know what the hell they were doing either. <laughs> that was just a sampling of this wonderful man's interview. Look for the full interview on a podcast coming soon. This week, instead of doing a... I, I did a hybridized version of uh, my writer's profile... Some of it based on a suggestion that Toby gave, uh, gave me a while ago. Um, but it was mostly because it was – not mostly, but it was par- partly also because of the movie Silence of the Lambs, uh, which I assigned to my intro classes and um, in- intermediate classes. And uh, a few of the students, students mentioned it in conjunction with their work. I'd seen the film more than a few times, but not recently. And since it's a remarkable piece of cinema, in my opinion, I was more than happy to see it again. I had just also read a version of the script that I've had for years. There used to be a magazine called, um, now I'm going to forget what it is, Script or Script something, a scenario. Hmm. And it was, it was $20 per episode or per <laughs> episode, per um, edition. And it would put, they would print four scripts inside this uh, magazine, which was a great idea. And one of them was Silence of the Lambs, and I kept it. And in looking back on it, it was quite a bit different uh, than the movie. So I thought, well, that would be fun to kind of compare and comp- contrast. Um, I mean, the, the guy that, that's responsible for these films because of his books is Th- Thomas Harris. And uh, he basically wrote uh, seminal pieces on Hannibal the Cannibal uh, Lecter. Uh, first, the first book was called Red Dragon, which became the movie Manhunter, written and directed by Michael Mann. Um, Manhunter predates Silence of the Lambs, both the film and the book, by several years. Silence may have pre- pre- perfected the genre, but Manhunter, based on Red Dragon, did it first. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there was a TV show called Unsub. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, David Soul. David Soul, yeah. Uh, un- an Unsub means unknown <laughs> subject. Anything about Starsky and Hutch, I will not be, I will not be stumped. <laughs> um, and that also predated Silence of the Lambs by a few years. Unfortunately, it only lasted eight episodes. Yep. And I've never seen it, and I'm dying to find it. So it, was it, a, it was an NBC show. It was a Friday night show, so they knew they had something kind of smart, but probably not that accessible, so mm. they pushed it there, and it well, fell it, off the end. I mean, we're doing Criminal Minds now, and it sounds yep. like exactly the same thing. So. Um, so Red Dragon was the first of the series, and it introduced Hannibal, but Silence really codified the frightening and brilliant psychopath in a way that had rarely been seen in film. I can't think of a more intriguing or well-formed villain who combines a sense of style and humor with the most horrifying bent to mayhem. Maybe there is. I mean, I keep thinking that there's a better, a better or an equally good villain out there, but I'm, I'm coming up blank. Um, Harris did extensive research into the FBI's behavioral science unit at the time called the BSU, 
which is now called the BAU, the Behavioral Analysis Unit. He took classes at Quantico, which I would have loved to do, mm-hmm. uh, the FBI's campus in Virginia, and studied both serial killers and the men and women who tracked them down. This was at a time where very little was known about the men and women called profilers and the unique criminals they tracked. Profiling actually began, began in the mid-60s, but this wasn't until the mid-80s that this started to hit um, people's consciousness. Or I guess, yeah, about that. When Sonus of Lambs hit, it created a stir unlike any scene for an R-rated film. In fact, it set box office records for uh, a- any film rated R. The author and filmmakers became even more famous than they were. Silence garnered all five of the top Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Adapted Script. Anybody know um, the other two movies that um, that got all five top categories? Uh, oh, As Good As It Gets? Is that now one? Say again? Oh, wait, that's not right. Um, I said As Good As It Gets, but it's, they just took the two, to a top two. Yeah, the adaptation thing is the thing that throws me. Uh, okay. Well, screenplay, I guess. I'm, I'm, uh, Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves <laughs> is one. There you go. It's always Dances with Wolves. <laughs> and uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is something I'm kind of a- uh, hungering to see again anyway, so, we, so might, we may do that for class. Um, so it, Ted Talley was the writer who took the book and translated it brilliantly to the screen. I've never read the book, which is a really uh, – I hate to admit that, but I'm going to definitely pick it up, and I have already picked it up. Uh, Talley also adapted the later remake of Manhunter – uh, called Red Dragon, which was in the early 2000s. Jonathan Demme, who just died, uh, made Silence into a masterpiece of suspense and horror. Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins really brought Cla- Agent Clarice Starling and Dr. Hannibal Lecter to the screen with chilling effect. It was in all ways a masterpiece, and it all started from the mind of Harris. Given all the incredible talent behind the film, it's easy to understand who it could have been become a cinematic legend. But how specifically was this done? In a word, Hannibal. His character defies the books, I'm sorry, defines the books and movies, elevating them to near perfection. I tell my classes always, look to your villain first. Without him or her, be it an internalized villain like a drug habit or made horribly real like Lecter, the villain is always the key to your script. I'm going to cover this concept in some detail later, but I wanted to give some background on Harris and where the character of Lecter came from, which just surfaced recently. Um, Harris is somewhat of a recluse. Now, I think he's only given two interviews in all the years he's been around. But in his early days, he earned his bachelor's degree in English from Baylor. And uh, while attending school, he also worked for the local newspaper as a reporter. At some point, Harris got a job with the Associated Press. His beat was homicide and other violent crimes. This helped fuel his imagination for the macabre. He also worked for Argosy magazine, covering both the U.S. and Mexico, um, and as detailed in his foreword to the 25th anniversary edition of Silence of the Lambs, which is the re-release of the book, Lecter was inspired by a Mexican doctor who he encountered in prison while interviewing a different inmate. So Argosy sent him down to Mexico, and he asked the, the prison people who this uh, inmate had been shot or something, and he asked who, who fixed him up, and they pointed to this doctor. So this doctor had been convicted of murdering, dismembering, and packing and throwing the victim's body parts out of his moving car to dispose of them. The doctor was quite brilliant and quite insane and actually had saved the lives of many inmates and working poor while serving his sentence. Harris used this madman as the basis for for the intimidating at Lecter. Perhaps the most frightening part of this story is that I believe this, this doctor was released after serving his sentence. 
So he served 30 years in prison, and then he was released after dismembering I don't know how many people. I, I just don't know how, how that happens. Um, so let's do a segment called Where Is He Now? I have a ticket for anybody who wants to go to Mexico. No? Predating uh, any Harris, Hannibal books is Harris's first novel called Black Sunday. Anybody ever see that? Isn't that the uh, uh, terrorist the, thing at the Super Bowl? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's like one of those like movies all night kind of movies. Yeah, it's and on. It, I had no idea it was Thomas Harris who no, wrote I w- the book. I, I wouldn't have thought they had anything in common. Yeah, well, and it, it, I guess it was inspired. I'm going to move my microphone, so go ahead, excuse go ahead. me. Uh, it was inspired by the Munich Olympics uh, mm-hmm. tragedy. Uh, they were That group was called Black September. And uh, Harris took that as a kind of um, a basis for Black Sunday. Um, and also, I, I read somewhere, I, I'm not positive about this, but I think Black Sunday um, engendered the legislation that prevents people from flying over uh, sports stadiums today. So you're not allowed to go over a sports stadium unless you're the military or um, uh, the blimp. Uh, you have to have permission. It's a no-fly zone. So. Another interesting bit of trivia, I don't know how interesting this is, but um, legendary screenwriter Ernest Lehman, who wrote the Hitchcock film North by Northwest, this guy's legendary, and we will profile him soon, was one of the writers for Black Sunday. But he was also approached by Jonathan Demme to write for Silence of the Lambs, but he refused. It wasn't until nine years after Black Sunday, which was 1986, that the movie Manhunter, based on Harris's book Red Dragon, was made. Manhunter was not a commercial or critical success, although it's since become a cult classic. I loved it the first time I saw it. I'm, I'm a big Michael Mann fan, and I like William Peterson and Dennis Farina. They're the stars of this. Well, yeah. the, at least two of them. Um, I, found, I found it like tucked among the romantic comedies at Blockbuster, uh, and I thought, wow, this is a great movie. But, uh, by the way, if you don't know what Blockbuster is, I really hate you all. I just like I just like the idea that somebody had to stock the shelves and was looking to get out perhaps a little early and just went, Manhunter. It's about somebody looking. She's looking for a man. Let's put it on the rom coms. It's that's a true story. Looking at the picture and going, that looks yeah. like Ellen Barkin. We can do this. So uh, anyway, uh, let's see. I, I, we already talked about uh, unsub, which kind of is what uh, Criminal Minds is today. By the way, Criminal Minds I think is going into its eighth or ninth season. It's an incredibly. That's incredible. It's incredible. I don't know how they keep. Pulling, you know, uh, Mandy Pantinkin quit that show because he felt like it was too violent uh, because they weren't getting into the thoughts and minds of the serial killers as much as the blood. Um, so, uh, you know, Sonnets of the Lambs made Harris famous and I thought, you know, furthered the stardom of Demi Hopkins and Foster. And I, again, I'm going to say I don't think anything's been seen since uh, that's been done as well. That movie is a masterpiece, a truly a masterpiece. Uh, five Hannibal books and movies have been done in all, the most recent Hannibal Rising in 2007. In that time, Hannibal has gone from uber-villain to anti-hero in the books and movies, a, f- uh, a, a trend I think is detestable given what serial killers are, and I could go on a screed about this uh, on and on and on. Uh, I, it's just a pet peeve of mine, I, and really the series Dexter brought this to prominence for me, I think it's Dexter's brilliantly written and produced. It's incredibly well done. But the idea of a serial murderer as the focal point and acceptable protagonist of a TV series just makes my skin crawl. Um, the excellent TV series Hannibal, on the other hand, starring Hugh Dancy as FBI agent Will Graham, who was the protagonist in the book Red Dragon. He was the first FBI agent. And Mads Mikkelsen as Lecter, who is insanely good, does not make the killer into a hero, and I think the series is superbly conceived and executed. It covers both the time before Manhunter, which is the prequel, 
when Lecter was only thought to be a brilliant psychologist, psychiatrist, and after the true horror of who he is is discovered, captured, and incarcerated. I think mid-season three is where Red Dragon books actually begin to come into the narrative of the series Hannibal. Before that, the, the first season's incredible. It's amazing. Um, and then, the, then Hannibal escapes and they go to Europe, and I wasn't as interested, but it's still a great series. Um, the, in, in my opinion, it's probably one of the better um, uh, portrayals of Hannibal. He's portrayed uh, as uh, he prepares. The reason is, is because he's a gourmet chef. And he prepares human flesh and serves it to his guests, including the FBI agent who he's treating for PTSD. Um, this is implied in the earlier films. Everybody remember the fava bean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but really emphasized in this series with the entire websites, with entire websites actually devoted to Lecter's recipes, sans <laughs> human flesh, of course. And uh, side notes, Thomas Harris was and is a gourmet cook. So write what you know is the old trope. Hmm. There's no doubt that Dr. Hannibal Lecter is one of the most rich and diverse villains either literature or film has encountered. He's characterized as having no category in any psychological form. He has no empathy or conscience, and although he tortured small animals when he was a child, which is one of the McDonald triad of psychopathy, he doesn't fulfill the others. Does anybody know what the other two legs of that triad are? Uh, is, is it, uh, are they McDonald's related? <laughs> I'm sorry. As soon as you said McDonald's, I just was like, Hamburglar? Wait, no. No, no I, I don't know what the others would be. The, the McDonald triad of psychopathy is serial killers tend to torture small animals, light fires, and wet the bed, um, which is odd that it follows a lot of these guys. Now, Wait, now, do you have to have all three? Yeah, or? wait a second. All three are considered, okay. uh, yeah. But, um, you can I keep mean, lighting fires, Toby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, every, every, I think everybody lights fires, mm-hmm. you know, one time or oh, the other. Naturally. But, I mean, I'm talking about arsonist kind of things. Uh, Lecter's sense of smell is highly heightened. He has an eidetic memory using the method of Loki. You ever hear of that? No. It's, um, it's, you know what it is. It's like if you have to remember a list of things, you put, a, you put yourself in a palace, and then everything, like the king. Oh, the mind palace. Yeah, the mind palace thing. thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he speaks a half dozen languages, classically trained, intellectually brilliant, and cooks like a gourmet. He has refined taste and culture in air, all areas of the world and is offended terribly by rudeness, killing people in horrible fashion because of it. Perhaps channeling the future Lecter, the tooth fairy killer in the movie Manhunter, which was Red Dragon, played by Thomas Noonan, murders a rude reporter in a particularly disgusting way, binding, to him, binding him to a chair, biting off his lips with a set of dentures fashioned from other people's teeth, and then setting him on fire. Very Lecter-like. Yeah. If you read the forward to the 25th anniversary of Silence of the Lambs, you get a sense of where in Harris's mind such an amazing and horrifying creature came from. Quote, Many years later, I was trying to write a novel. My detective needed to talk to somebody with a peculiar understanding of the criminal mind. Lost in the tunnel of the work, I plodded along behind my detective when he went to Baltimore State Hospital for the criminally insane to consult with an inmate. Who do you suppose was waiting in the cell? was not Dr. Salazar, who was the Mexican doctor who yeah. he's based on, but because of Dr. Salazar, I could recognize his colleague and fellow practitioner, Hannibal Lecter, end quote. There's also a recollection of a place Harris stayed replete with feral dogs, which he befriended, which is incredible because it came, became the basis of the way the tooth fairy killer tracked and surveilled his vis, vis, victims in Red Dragon. I'm not sure where it's from, but I'll include a link in the, in the show notes uh, to the page. It's titled, I Want to Tell You the Circumstances in Which I First Encountered Hannibal Lecter, M.D. So I'll, keep, I'll put that link in the show notes. I have so much more to say about Harris, Lecter, but especially the insanely brilliant techniques used to create the book in the subsequent film, Silence of the Lambs. 
Look for part two of this topic in future podcasts where I break down Silence of the Lambs, one of only three films to win all five major Oscar categories and why it works as well as it does. Hint, it's the villains. Cue organ music. And that's it for this week on my writer's profile. You guys have any, anything yeah, to I, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating profile, and I, I just uh, – not – not to not, certainly not to be dismissive of any part of it, but I think one of the important lessons that uh, we should take as writers is uh, Thomas Harris lived very close to most of those events. Like he met those characters in a very organic way. I think one of the problems that we encounter with some writing that is uh, sort of in the Me Too tradition, or like I'd like to write a serial killer movie, is if you're just writing it based on your knowledge of other serial killer movies. It's going to lack uh, authenticity. It's going to lack uh, it's the, not, the it's nuances. Not in, it's not informed, as you exactly. said. Exactly. And, and so, because I know that, Mark, you've done research Extensive. with with FBI. You've, you've spoken with them. You've probably got a pretty thick folder in one of their uh, <laughs> closets. But uh, I, I think it's, a, it's, um, it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing that I think inexperienced writers will fall into is you want to write movies like you like, mm-hmm. but you need to know more than just the movies you like to write one mm-hmm. like that. That's a really good point. When I, when I first started, my first film was a serial killer film, and I based it on what I knew about uh, serial killers in the movies. I didn't do much research. And then I honestly, as I went through the research, and there's a, there's a huge event in my life that occurred with this when I, when I went to Virginia and sat with Robert Ressler, who is a true legendary profiler. But I started to change my opinion about how killer, serial killers should be uh, portrayed, and that's one of the reasons I, I'm very opposed to Dexter, to showing them as these anti-heroes, which they're not. And then, actually, Lecter has gone from this horrible villain, this really horrible, frightening villain, to being an anti-hero. And I, I don't have any, I have, you know, the thing is, is I loved The Sopranos. I loved Tony Soprano. I thought that was a great show. How could I like Tony Soprano and, and object to Dexter? Because I'm following a psychopath. But there's just something about um, the, the idea of serial killer. I know what they do. I know why they do what they do. Um, so anyway, but um, yeah, it's, uh, Woody Allen said, if, if you want to write film and all you do is watch film, you're going you're gonna to fail. You've got to read books. You've got to do the research. Um, there's uh, two students in my intro class who are very, very interested in this topic. So we have, uh, we have pretty lively discussions on this. Should we jump into this from Q&A? Yeah, Q&A. So a few questions for you, Mark. Um, I'll just jump right in with, would you say our scriptwriting contests, what are your thoughts or opinions? Are they a waste of money? Is it a viable option for writers? What do you think? You t- scriptwriting contests? Like straight yes. con- Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think they're a waste of money. I think you can waste money on them, but I do think they have validity. I think they're viable. Here's what it does is it gives you a sense, a true sense of what your script is capable of doing. If you get rejected, if you get to the semifinals, something you're doing right is right. Something you're doing is right. If you don't get to the semifinals, that still doesn't mean that you're no good or that you're worthless. It just means that whatever you're trying to produce um, is not being – like is not re- – I've, su- I've submitted a couple things to Amazon uh, Studios, mm-hmm. and one thing was rejected – in 12 hours, and the other things took a while a longer to get rejected. So I, I assume that there's people reading that, but 
So those people who are reading that material in contests or whatever may end up to be future producers. And I've gotten calls from um, – I was supposed to write Jason Meets Freddy in Hell, <laughs> and I kind of didn't want to do it. And but, I mean I've done some really stupid effing things in my career. That was one of them. But the guy that called me in had worked as a, an accountant for a previous film company that I worked for, and he loved my work and he loved my writing. And when he moved uh, in the business, he called me to come in and pitch these ideas. So anyway, um, no, I don't think they're a waste of time. I do think that they're expensive and you can spend a lot of money, waste a lot of money on them. But if you, go with, if you stick with some of the big guys – I think I think that's a really mm-hmm. good thing I, to do. Maybe that would be a useful note. Is obviously some due diligence on your part as the uh, as the screenwriter is to look for. Can you think of any sort of clues that would help me tell if this is a an above board contest versus something that might just be a cash grab? Well, let me. I think you do. You would do the same due diligence that you would do with any company. So go online, look at the forms. There's a couple that are absolutely positively golden. One is the final draft big break. The second one would be the uh, Nichols contest, which is the Academy, the, the Oscar-supported uh, one, and then um, Blue Cat, which started out to be very modest. When it, I remember when Blue Cat started, but it's gotten to be a big contest. And then um, just you know, do your due diligence. One of a couple, uh, one of my students sent to a um, the Oaxaca Film Festival, <laughs> and he actually won um, for comedy. And so, um, you know, it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I think the smaller ones, you have a better chance, but they also have less of a, a prize. I think the prizes, too, matter. If you're, if you're looking for money, just go with any of them. But if you're looking for a break, look at yeah. who, they're, who they're saying they'll introduce you to. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess the, the prize slash prize money could be a distraction from the actual valuable a festival where you let a contest where you could actually get good exposure, good feedback versus, uh, you know, if the prize is a new car, it might not be that good. <laughs> a, a well, contest. some of, some of these contests also offer coverage, either as part of the contest entry or as an an added uh, attraction. So, um, which and we should talk about coverage. Yeah, well, that's another question oh, okay. I have here. Does buying coverage help? Oh, there you go. Segway. Yeah, we segued right into <laughs> right it. Um, yeah, coverage. Here's, here's the thing with coverage. I used to do coverage. When I was first starting out, I interned for an agent, and I used to go up to L.A. and actually pick up physical scripts. I used to bring them home, read them, bring them back, and I did coverage. And coverage, let's define coverage. Does anybody know what – anybody want to help me with coverage here? Coverage basically – and I'll try not to be overly cynical. <laughs> coverage is where uh, a failing, frustrated, or unemployed screenwriter <laughs> – uh, works in an office and or tells a young their enthusiastic screenwriter. Sure, Mark. Uh, <laughs> they tell their boss why they shouldn't buy your screenplay. Yeah, that's that's the cynical <laughs> version of it. All right, coverage is a very valuable tool because most executives don't have the time to read the number of uh, submissions they get. Sometimes they're very big words. <laughs> Actually, I was just reading a thing about that. That uh, I I think uh, I have to I have to remember this, but there's a. There's actually a test to see what at what level your script is or thing is reading at. Uh, most is third grade. Um, <laughs> so coverage is, is a person who has some skills with story, reading your script, uh, along, uh, writing a, a report along several factors, one of which is how many pages, what's the genre, synopsis of the story, and then they're either going to recommend you or the writer. I'm sorry, you, the writer, or the script. 
it can be recommend writer, fail script, recommend script, fail writer, or both, either either way. Um, but these coverage, these professional coverage houses, um, these people who are doing this, are ju- it's just an opinion, folks. It's just, it's subjective. Now, I have a lot of experience in film, um, but it's still just my opinion at the end of the day. If I can support that opinion and you agree with it, fine, you're doing well. But I think coverage has some value. You know, uh, one of the students in the intermediate class um, does coverage a lot. He buys coverage a lot. And he's told me that he's never seen anything in coverage that he hasn't heard in class. So if you can get to a workshop that's yeah. reasonably yeah. good, you're getting the same thing. Um, I, I've, I've been uh, a, a preliminary judge on a few script contests. Mm. And what we as judges do is we were doing coverage merely as a form of whittling it down to see what goes to the mm-hmm. next level, the next level. I'm pretty sure the coverage I was writing didn't go to the, the screenwriters. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of internal. Mm-hmm. And we all had a, a shared document that was the format that made things easy to, to, to process. And that's basically what it is. It's turning the script, which is this you know magical, beautiful butterfly, into uh, an Excel spreadsheet that people can look at. And the synopsis and everything is important, but it was... Um, the differentiation between like this writing is good, this writer knows what they're doing, the script is not so great. And, or it's and, not commercially viable. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and that was, uh, I, I was super lucky. The very first thing I ever wrote, I wrote with somebody else and he knew somebody at that worked at a production office and was able to get it slipped in. And we got coverage on the very first thing we wrote, which was terrible. <laughs> in In so many ways it was terrible, but getting coverage was fascinating because... They told us stuff about ourselves that we did not know because we didn't know you what didn't the know hell what we were doing. Know. Yeah, right. And yeah. and so coverage in that respect is fun because you know you can sit there right now uh, out there in podcast land. You got your you got your final draft. You've got this, that, and the other. It's the greatest thing your mom has ever read. Well, it's your mom. She's going to be nice to you. Uh, one of the cool things about coverage is it, it's they're kind of disinterested. Everybody wants to find a treasure. So they're not, they're not really out there to be negative, but they, they don't know you, they don't owe you anything, and they can look at it with some objectivity and with an eye to the professional rather than the artistic, yeah. and, there, and there is a difference. But let's, so let's differentiate, though, uh, which is my fault. I didn't differentiate. There's coverage that's done for studios, producers, agents, and then there's coverage that's done professionally where you pay for it. Yeah. So those are t- they're the same thing, but they're, they're different purposes. The coverage that you pay for is for you to benefit from somebody else's opinion about your work. The producers, directors, etc., want to know, is this viable for a something we may uh, – and, and believe me, it's a long process. They do coverage. The producer reads the coverage. Then the producer reads the script, maybe, if, he, if they're interested. Because one of the things they do is, is give, they, they write your log line for you. And if that long li- log line, which is a synopsized uh, two-sentence version of your script, doesn't catch them, it doesn't go any further than that. Then, you know, then he reads the script, and then they got to take it to their boss, and their boss got to take it. It's a long, long process. Right, and you're most likely not going to get that coverage as, right. the, scre- as the screenwriter. And that was a, a, one, something I wanted to mention. We, we got coverage because we knew somebody in that office, but that coverage was not for the writer. It's not. Right. It's, not it's like it's none of your business. Right. It's why we're not going to buy your script or we are going to buy your script, but it's not. So, so when you pay for it, you get it, which yeah, is why right. initially that might be the way to go. Well, and the other thing is um, I remember one particular instance where I got the coverage back from a script I submitted to a company that I had already done a couple films for. 
and it was so glowing. It was like the it was like my mom had read the script. You know, this is a genius. This is so. Um, and the producer read the coverage and said, "I don't believe the premise. We don't want to do it." I mean, he just basically rejected it on the on the log line. He didn't hardly look at the rest of the coverage. So that's an internal document. And the reason for that is it's also legal. But um, it's basically if you let's say I've been in this business long enough to be through several levels of executives, and if you resubmit that script like 10 years later, they actually go back into their files and look <laughs> for that yeah. information. And if you've submitted that script already, they're not going to read it again. Not unless you, you've said this is a complete different rewrite or, or anyway. So, I mean, I've thought about uh, taking my work and changing uh, the title and the... Um, few names yeah, here or there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to resubmit it. But. I, I suspect that uh, coverage will be something that... Uh, Although it's it's a it's it's an entry level job in a lot of places for a lot of interns, yeah, things like intern, that. But, yeah. I think that's something that will be replaced by AI, and they'll get really <laughs> good at spotting your old scripts. They may. They may. There's you're already AI to, writing scripts. Yeah, you're going to have to change some character names. You're going to have to put in a lot of typos to fool the <laughs> AI. But uh, I, on that respect, uh, one of my friends was uh, uh, becoming an intern at a. Uh, well, I'll be careful here. Uh, he was at an uh, an entertainment management firm. And they made him, as part of the entry uh, process, he had to write coverage on some scripts, and he didn't know how. Mm. And so I actually wrote coverage for a film called Passengers. Mm. And, uh, and then I had to sit with him and explain to him, like, I read it. This is what I saw. This is what you would say about it. This is this. This is this. This is this. And, and um, I, I also read at that time that uh, – Oh boy, I just forgot the guy's name. Director of the Terminator, Cam James Cameron. Cameron. James Cameron used to recommend a book that told you how to read a script to write coverage. Yeah, there was there was a book on how to read scripts, right? and and that and that was actually a great way because you could actually apply it to your own work. Mm -hmm. right. Is now read it as if somebody like you said, the accountant at a production company. How would they read it? What are they looking for? And it was I was always fascinated by the attention they pay to characters because of course characters are played by movie stars, right. and movie stars are on the poster bigger than the name of your movie yeah. and and they're the ones actually they're the ones that are more important than anything yeah. because you can you can sell a lousy film to an audience if it's got a great act an actor a name yeah but we're, you we're not going to name any names but you know exactly <laughs> you know who they are the a-listers so uh do we have another question or is that yeah it? last question um so would you say is it okay to entertain the reader in a script by making things like asides or uh, things that don't actually pertain to the story how to style sort of Insert itself. Um, so I think we're talking about Shane Black, aren't we? Well, he's probably the most prominent um, user and abuser of that. And I don't have anything against that style for other people. But for me, one of the things I tell students all the time is even if you're not doing asides, even if you're not doing cutesy, uh, like um, what's her name? Um, who's married to Kenneth Branagh. Um, oh, Emma Thompson? Yeah. She wrote... One of the kids' movies, uh, Nanny McPhee. Yeah, love it. She wrote. <laughs> she writes that she puts in entertaining uh, sides in her script to entertain the reader. Mm -hmm. My feeling is okay. So it's a couplefold. One is that's not your job. Two is entertaining the reader is fine, except it takes you out of the story. And if you're writing a script, it's an artificial. It's an artifice to begin with. You're, there's nobody that sits down and and says, "I got to read a great script." It's mostly books. People get involved in books. People don't get involved in scripts. I mean, maybe at the top levels they do, but um, 
I always try to write great, entertaining scripts without breaking that fourth wall or whatever you want to call it. Because I feel like if, you, like if you're using really odd formatting or you're using, uh, yes, dear, that is your ass you're grabbing, as Shane Black did in one of his uh, scripts. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just feel like you're taking the person out of the story. But you can't argue with success. There are people who are very successful with it. I don't like it. I, I always caution my students not to do that. And I myself am one of the most conservative script writers you're ever going to meet. Nothing about a slug line should be entertaining. Nothing about a transition should make take you out of the script. I mean, I don't think anybody gets style points because they're freaking, uh, you know, and, and narrative is a little bit different, but it, then it gets tedious. It's not reading a book. You're not reading a book. This is a business decision yeah. these people are making. They're not there to be entertained. If, you, if they want to be entertained, they're going to get a good book. That's my opinion. And mm-hmm. so I always, if you're in my class, you get yelled at if you do that. But um, it is a very viable way to do. Yeah, something. that means I get yelled at a lot <laughs> because I really like when style is in a script. I know, I mean, there are times where it gets really indulgent, where it's sort of like, okay, and we that's what like, I'm talking about. yeah, Your I know, fine. yeah, no, I know, I like because I a lot of times think style helps inform tone a little bit or even drive home a point that you're trying to make in a scene. And I think you have to use it. Um, you know, it can't be something you're using like liberally, like within every scene. I think there are points when you're utilizing kind of your own style and voice, but um, but I do think it's something that you have to walk because we or walk, you know, sort of that line carefully. But because we've you know read scripts in class, and it's interesting, you know, to see. I mean, there is kind of a wide range of mm-hmm. how people, you know, how people yeah. write. And, I'm not uh, opposed to metaphor or mm-hmm. simile or or well turn a, a, a nice turn of phrase. Like if you say. Uh, uh, this is uh, from Silence of the Lambs or Manhunter. Uh, the blood looks in the moonlight looks black. Mm-hmm. Now that's stylistic. That doesn't really yeah. drive that, but it creates a tone, like yeah. Mary Claire's yeah. saying. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. I uh, I, I entered a Project Greenlight many years ago. Oh yeah. And my script. Uh, uh, is that still around? God, I hope not. <laughs> I think it's on the last legs. <laughs> uh, if it is, I do have a, a, a shovel in the trunk of my car, and I, I know the quickest <laughs> way to the desert. Um, I, I submitted a script to Project Greenlight, and that was a very uh, interesting that, – that, that process was interesting, uh, not in a positive way, but lessons learned. But one of the things I did was in that script, and this was many years ago, and I wrote a lot differently, I'd, I put just a very throwaway joke – that one of my characters was at at at, dis, at, a, at a point of despair, and therefore was looking out into the darkness. And I just put like that Edsel was looking out into the abyss, and then I put underneath. Conversely, the abyss was looking into him. <laughs> the Nietzsche. <laughs> Thank you, Nietzsche. <laughs> and uh, one of the people that had to read that script for feedback it's just like, tore that apart. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like everything they gave was like you know. Three 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 or zero 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 zero, and then when it was like, and do you have anything you'd like to say to the screen? Boom! Yeah, and don't they just, you dare. don't do that. Don't think you're so clever to put some joke in there that's for me to. If I want to laugh, I'm gonna laugh, motherfucker. And I just was. I'm, like, and I'm sorry for that coverage. I'm sorry I, I gave you and that. Mark, that <laughs> yeah. And that's when I found where you live. That's like that. that would have been like three amazing. Oh. <laughs> Holy smokes! I mean, Love the wink. Honestly, oh it, it was. Brings up such a but, but I, I but I do take that lesson to this day because if I ever put anything in there i go gotta be careful yeah am i doing a Nietzsche moment so that person although i hope they died painfully they did me <laughs> no, a very solid favor no i do uh <laughs> oh, they did me a, they did me a very solid favor because they reminded me that your screenplay is a it's a recipe or it's a schematic but if you wanted if you you know if you want to get cute write a cute book <laughs> well and but the, and this is my point about this too is 
so you run across somebody like Mary Claire who loves the Nietzsche quote, and then you run across somebody like I, I love the Nietzsche quote actually, also because I think who it's a hates book. a quote by a nihilist? Because <laughs> that means you're not well, a nihilist. Plus, it, it's it's what um, it's the quote that Robert Ressler uses in his book. Um, uh, event, uh, I was going to say Adventures in the Screen Trade. <laughs> uh, Robert Ressler, the, so Adventures in the Manhunter's yeah, Trade? Yeah, man in the... In the yeah. No, but he uses that Nietzsche quote at the beginning of his book, so I would think, oh, that's pretty clever. But the problem is, is if you run across somebody who hates that, right. they do that mindful flavor, of any yeah. already. Yeah, they they the rest it. of your script. Yeah. yeah. And so, so you take the well, chance... Well, luck, luckily they hated the rest of the script. <laughs> well, nice. you never know if you hadn't put that Nietzsche quote in there. He mm-hmm. might have loved it. He might have given you a four so, <laughs> instead of a three. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the uh, the questions. Uh, Mary Claire, tell us where we can submit these questions. Yeah, sure. If at any point you have a question for us, you can leave us a message at 919-SCRIPTS. Call in. We would love to hear uh, your questions or thoughts via voicemail. We'll play it on the show. Um, if you want to leave a comment, um, you can also just leave it at plotpoints.com, and we'll read it there. Yeah, please, uh, please take advantage of this situation. Um, we would love to hear from you more, and uh, uh, the website's set up to, to to take the comments and also the the phone number. Yeah. And if you have any uh, anything you've heard, if you have any comments about it that you agree with or don't agree with, or Certainly. depending on how you feel about my Nietzsche quote, take, take us to, take us to task. We're and ready if you're for that it. guy that had to read my script for Project Green Life, <laughs> and you're still out there, I will find you. Get in touch, bro. Get in touch. He's probably your gatekeeper now for every mm-hmm. job you're going to get. This week um, in in film history, what do we got? Yeah, this week, and actually both films that I'm going to touch on premiered today in film history. So oh. August 13th, one 50 years ago, the other 20 years ago, and I should uh, make a point that the other is a TV show. But um, but the first uh, film is Bonnie and Clyde, which oh, yeah. was 50 years ago, wow. the the bloody biopic, um, you know, starring Warren Beatty and Fair, Faye Dunaway hit theaters, and, uh, and to the surprise of critics who did not enjoy the film, it was really a smash with audiences, and uh, and it's still you know considered a landmark film and regarded to be you know one of the first films of the new Hollywood era, um, since it broke a lot of the cinematic taboos, um, you know with just so much violence in the film um, and kind of ushered in a new wave of sort of these inspired films that were catered a lot to the younger generation. So, um, so that was, yeah, 50 years ago, 50 years ago. Wow. Yeah. I remember Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I didn't see it in the theaters, but I do remember the movie. It wasn't, um, wasn't Clyde Barrow uh, portrayed as being impotent in that film, Yeah, Mm -hmm. which was a huge, that's amazing. And, and uh, wow, what a, what a film, what an amazing, uh, amazingly, um, courageous film. Yeah, I mean, Sam Peckinpah is kind of a, uh, I mean, notorious, but not a, not as known a quantity as a filmmaker, perhaps as he should be. But we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have Quentin Tarantino. We wouldn't have uh, Oliver Stone. I mm-hmm. mean, you can't make I, neither one of those guys can make a film without. Uh, Without specifically Bonnie and Clyde, I mean, it was like it's a mainstream movie. It's got movie stars in it, but it's also got a B movie sensibility, and and that's really what, in many ways, resurrected Hollywood. Was we can make these? Oh, let's make these. Right. People pleaser movies, which depending on how you feel about that artistically, is immaterial. They made money. They kept Hollywood going so that they could make Heaven's Gate. So they could make, you know, and, uh, and actually, Heaven Gate, Heaven's Gate was not a horrible film. No, but it, but it wasn't a crowd pleaser. No, no. <laughs> But the thing I think that's most uh, salient about uh, Bonnie and Clyde is it, it, as what you said, it ushered in uh, a new new generation of filmmakers who were more concerned with showing 
the dirty, ugly right, sides of mm-hmm. everything. I yeah. mean, Bonnie and Clyde were folk heroes, but they weren't per- they weren't portrayed as being particularly nice people. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a great choice. Yeah, what else? Too. And then South Park premiered twenty oh, years ago. Twenty years ago, when I saw that number, I was like, that can't be right. But it's very very accurate. Yeah, August thirteenth, nineteen ninety seven. Um, Trey Parker, Matt Stone, really unleashed these kids into the world um and it's had over 267 episodes and really been the pillar for uh for comedy central you know it's one of their highest yeah. rated shows and it still continues you know they're moving on to their 21st season come september um and and really the creators have taken on everything from like anything and everything you know celebrity culture uh voting political re- correctness scientology the mormon church um and jesus, really yeah uh, jesus yeah. has really encouraged yeah its audiences to think more critically and and about everything from political ple- beliefs to pop culture and so it's not you know for everybody's taste but it's endured because of really their unapologetic approach to controversy um and they're great writers like and and Absolutely. really like at the forefront of i mean something so unique there um i mean they've gone on to do so many other things as well i mean from movies to the Book of Mormon. Which they won um, a Tony for. Right, like 12 Tonys. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I mean, it was What's a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, they're incredibly successful and uh, and are still really hands-on, you know, with South Park. Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's amazing, really, um, that it's endured this long. But there, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a documentary on Netflix. Yeah, I watched that. Did you about watch the that? writing About oh the writing room. Lord. I know it's oh, crazy. Right. Is that the one where it's basically like a week in the life? Yes, of, because yeah. they turn out those shows so yeah. quickly because it's, they, a, it's and a turnaround. Running, the it's a week. running with the, with the, <laughs> right. uh, the To Comedy the Central, street. yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's like broadcast news. It's like it's on in half yeah. an hour and it takes 25 minutes to get there. Right. Let's go. Broadcast news is a great film too. But uh, <laughs> but specifically to, to South Park, what's fascinating about it is, um, like you said, I mean, they, they really – they're really taboo busters, and I don't think they hold – there are no sacred cows with them. They're equal opportunity <laughs> offenders. I think a lot of people claim to be equal opportunity mm-hmm. offenders, but they're just offensive. Yeah, I, I mean I, I, I haven't seen as many South Park episodes as I like, but everyone I see I'm just so amused by. And the, what comes to mind, the one I always remember is the one where something was in Madonna's vagina. And I can't that's an early episode. Is that an early? <laughs> or is it Barbara Streisand? It's both of them. Uh, well, the Madonna, <laughs> Madonna one is one. I think the one I remember. But I mean, it's like the, I think it was the devil or something. I just, you know, I I don't know where they come up with yeah. these freaking ideas and how they think they're going to get. How does it, How do they get away with that? Is what what's so amazing. So. Uh, I think they said from the start that they were going to push. <laughs> the envelope completely and a comedy central is either going to be on board or they weren't. And so they've gotten, I mean, they've earned sort of the right over the, the past few years, I think for sure the past 20 years, of course. But, um, but I always think about the Simpsons did it episode. I love that episode. I think that that's so funny like that, you know, they're always trying to think through of new ideas, but we can't do it because the Simpsons already did it yeah. or, um, um, and, and then family guy too. comes into play too. And it's kind of like, Oh my God. And, um, there, I mean, there are just so many, I mean, so many good ones over the years and they're consistent, you know? Um, so it's like that. I mean, that's why it's, endured for so long but um but it's great and i own the movie too it's yeah. a great movie also i think once you... and team america is great too i want to uh, plug uh, for that movie also i, I remember when I saw, I saw team america and i thought because team america was not a huge box office hit and i remember when i saw it i was like this is just going to make so much money this is the most right on yeah. thing it's like so 
uh, of the time and it was making such a salient point and it was all this stuff and you still talk to people that never saw it and you're like yeah. that's crazy to me well, first of all, I still sing all those songs <laughs> yeah it's uh, those are the puppets from the Thunderbird like the yeah, Thunderbirds the, right? the marionettes yeah, yeah. The marionettes. Well, and they make no I mean no bones about them being terrible puppeteers yeah. so well, they're just kind of like walking around the, actual, the, the DVD is fantastic <laughs> see the making of the uh, shows, I watched all of that because it shows like how originally they could do it much because first of all none of them had ever done it or practiced <laughs> But then, then when they got quite good, then they would go back and get do it do like a bad take because right, they thought that was funnier, yeah, and it is. <laughs> they never wanted to look like these were almost realistic puppets. Well, I never thought the Thunderbirds were all that realistic either, but never nobody cared. It was so that was fun. What's the isn't who? What's the one with Blame Canada in it? The song that's, in, the, that's the bigger, longer, bigger longer cut. Yeah, yeah, that's which is okay. great because that, that was nominated for an Oscar. That song. Yeah, um, it's a great yeah. song. It's a it great was song. there are a ton of great I, songs I in think it. Robin Williams performed it. He did. At the, yeah, the Oscars. Academy Awards. No. Yes, he did. Oh, yeah, wow. he did. It was great. That's funny. All right. Well, poor Robin Williams. Boy, do we miss him. Okay. Well, thanks. Those are two great um, uh, mentions. One film, one TV. I think uh, we all agree that they're genius. Uh, if you haven't seen Bonnie and Clyde, I highly recommend the movie. I think it still holds up uh, even 50 years later. Plus, you get a chance to see Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway in their prime, in their yeah. prime, in their glory. So, um, so I'm going to wrap this up with a quote by Moliere, a French playwright and actor who is considered to be one of the greatest masters of comedy in Western literature. This is a quote I've always loved. Writing is like prostitution. First you do it for love, then for a few close friends, and then for money. Well, before you're able to do it for money, and after the love dims a bit, you have to learn how to write with the expectations of money, meaning that you need to develop habits that will allow you to write anytime, anywhere. I hate those writers who have to have a chilly day hinting at rain with a hot cup of Earl Grey sitting at their desk side, faithful dog drowsing at their feet. They might or might not be wearing something with leather patches somewhere. In other words, posers. I also do not, like, for the life of me, understand how anyone writes in a freaking coffee shop. How in blazes can you focus on anything but the eternal traffic of humanity? But I do appreciate anyone who can do that because it means they are able to write practically anywhere, which is essential to when your office is the backseat of your car while someone is waiting for your pages on a hard deadline. More than any of this, there are habits that a pro has to engender in order to earn the privilege of writing for money. And it is a privilege. Uh, anybody who gives you a check for anything you do is a privilege. These habits, the good ones, are developed when you're just starting out. Here's a few. You have to write, if not every day, most days. If you're playing at writing, then write whatever, whenever the muse hits you. But if you're serious, then you might want to have to get up before the household, work on Saturdays and Sundays when you'd rather be on the beach, or go to bed an hour later than you normally do. Let's take a simple analogy, the gym. Your goal is to lose weight and get buns of steel. Do you imagine that going once a week for 30 minutes will get you very far? What about learning to play a musical instrument or sculpt or draw? Nothing will get you nowhere faster than making excuses for why you can't do something. A friend of mine who writes primarily novels, Chris Styers, says he tries to write something every day, even if it's just a few paragraphs. He says this focuses him on the writing even when he's not writing. And I like that idea a lot. But I'm wondering if a grocery list counts. What say you, Chris? You have to develop, too, you have to develop a system of writing. How much research? How many rewrites? Do you outline or wing it? Workshop, no workshop, etc. When I'm writing, I do whatever research necessary to get started, and then I start actually writing as soon as I can. I know the trap of research. It can go on forever. I remember William Goldman saying he spent eight years researching Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and although I can't argue with the results, it's a great film and won an Academy Award, 
But eight years, really? I mean, where in the, that movie is eight years of research? The bicycle scene, the trade robbing stuff? I just don't see it. Maybe he did eight years of research to eliminate the bad ideas, so only the good ones showed up. So I do the research I need, start writing, and then continue the research as, as, as I'm writing. That's part of my system. How will you approach it? I also start my writing day by polishing the stuff I wrote in the previous session. That way, by the time I finish a first draft, it's more like draft 1.5 or 1.75. Again, that's my system. Will you do, do rewrites as you're writing or wait until the draft is finished? And I'm, as I'm always preaching, I write every day possible. There's simply no other way to do it. Find your systems and routines and apply them. They may change as you gain experience and seasoning, but they will continue to serve you down the road. Three, know your genre. Research the things you're writing, novel, story, or script rise. Writing a vampire flick? Excuse me, do you know vampire movies? Find a few top ten lists and make sure you've seen at least 85% of those films, especially the ones that have done well commercially. Four, rewrite. It's just impossible to not. I myself print out my scripts, read them, and make notes on paper. That's my official second draft. Then my third draft, which is usually a polished draft, is done on the screen. Five, always be a student. Study like you're in college. Read scripts, books, watch movies, television, whatever it is you're working at. YouTube has great offerings for panels and vlogs. The ones they do at the UCA Poly Pavilion, UCLA Poly Pavilion are really good, as are the Comic-Con panels you can find online. At Comic-Con this year, I attended a, writer's panel, a TV writer panel that was excellent. And although I knew a lot of what was being discussed already, there were at least five to six things I learned. Also, have some sense of history. While films are being made today, you, you give you your best sense of the current market. They're not the only films you should know. Watch Woody Allen's Annie Hall, or the original 1950s movie, The Thing. Get a sense of the evolution of film. Maybe pick one older movie or TV series to watch for every five current ones. Six, pack your subconscious mind. Read everything. Watch TED Talks. Subscribe to several news sources. Install an app that gives you news tabs with different subjects. I read a paper newspaper a day and at least half a dozen other sources, including Popular Science, CNN, etc. I used to watch The View to keep up with current events, which brings me to the point of don't lock down on the same subjects. Expand into other areas. You don't know what you don't know or what you might need. I don't have a lot of interest in the Kardashians, but I know who they are and I keep current on them. Sort of. String theory and mystery? Read about it. Maybe that romantic comedy you've been dying to write has at its core a quantum physics concept. I mean, who knows? Packing your subconscious mind is storing nuts for the winter, and winter is coming. Seven, there's this thing called voice, your unique approach to writing. Do you like Stephen King or perhaps filmmakers Chris Nolan or Ridley Scott? They have unique, distinctive voices that are expressed in their work, and those voices were developed over many hours of practice. That voice, that unique quality that is you and only you, will only be expressed as you work to develop it by writing. The only way you can understand your voice is to express and modify it in your work over a period of time. Eight, act like a pro and you will become a pro. Write even when you don't feel like it. Set deadlines and goals to work and achieve them. I make students present material as if it's going to a producer. Clean work, no errors. I encourage them to submit at least seven to ten pages each week at workshop. At the beginning of the year, I make them commit to goals. How many scripts will you write this year? No one really hits those goals, but they are something to shoot for. Nine, don't just write one script. You need dozens, a war chest. If you think that one masterpiece is going to sell, then think again. Even if it is a masterpiece, it might take years to find the right situation or producer. Write many, many scripts. Sell maybe one. 
Even so, I don't think that enough people understand that selling one script is hard, but selling that second and third script is even harder. If you don't have a fallback to other work, then you're wasting your time. So if you really want to earn money as a writing prostitute, it's all about you sitting down, putting in the hours, developing the systems, finding your unique voice. That's what makes the biggest impact in your writing life. That and a good set of leather patches. Be inspired. Do good work. That brings us to the end of another episode of Plot Points Podcast. On behalf of Mary Claire and Mark, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And uh, please get in touch. Let us know what you like and what you don't. And we'll see you next time. Take care.